only source of true delight whom I unseen adore Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more Oh that I might love thee more You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding die. The scripture reading for today is found in Romans 3. In the Blue Pew Bible, that's on page 940. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 8, if you'd like to follow along. Listen to the word of our Lord. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if, though, through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? The word of our faithful God. Uh, Let's go to the Lord. Ask his uh, blessing upon us. Lord, we come to your word dependent on you, dependent on your spirit. As Jesus said to Peter, it is not flesh or blood that has revealed this to you, Peter, when he confessed your name, Lord Jesus, but my Father in heaven. And Lord, we would... Repeat the prayer, join in the prayer of the psalmist. Open your word, open thou your law, that I may behold wonderful things in it. Lord, they are there, you are there, your glory shines forth. May we see that glory. May we see particularly, Lord, your faithfulness. Believe in it all the more. Be strong to give ourselves up to your will. Spend ourselves for the glory of Christ and the good of your people and the good of this world. Oh, Lord, may we believe in the majesty of the God who is steadfast in his loving kindness. Lord, it is to your glory we pray. Amen. Uh, This this passage uh, talks about the faithfulness of God and, and asks a lot of questions surrounding it. The, the questions that, that you hear the faithfulness of God in verse 3. You hear God being true in verse 4. You hear the righteousness of God in verse 5. And then you hear again about uh, the God, God's truth in verse 7. All of these things are really part of the same. The righteousness of God, the truth of God, the faithfulness of God. And it really comes down to one of the most essential aspects of God's glory. 
One of the most essential aspects of what he reveals himself to be and what we need as human beings. And that is his faithfulness. What's fascinating is you see the scripture in the the revelation of God to Abraham, which is a, a turning point in scripture. The first 11 chapters really in the Bible are kind of introductory, setting the stage for the redemptive story that begins with Abraham and then spreads to all of the world. And the very beginning thing that you see in God speaking to Abraham is his commitment to be faithful to Abraham. That he will not turn away from doing him good. He will not turn away until the whole world is blessed. And that's what you and I need desperately in the terrible circumstances that we can find ourselves. And the terrible losses and tragedy terrible brokenness that we feel from our own sin, the the wasteland that we can see as a result of the way we've lived our lives. It's the faithfulness of God. One of the most common words to describe God in the Psalms is His steadfast love. We're pretty familiar with that. Chesed is the, the Hebrew word. But this is, again, just a corollary, almost the same thing as saying God is faithful. His love is steadfast. It will never turn away from doing us good. It's really all we have. It's as though one huge revelation of God is just promise. You You almost summarize everything in terms of what the covenant is. It's just one huge word, promise. God promising everything to his people. Always, at all times for his people. I promise you. And that's why I think in Second Peter, as you've heard me say so many times, that Peter can actually say, we have these great and precious promises by which we partake the divine nature. See, it, the, the promise is what God sets between him and us, so to speak. Of course, to take his promise is to take him. And it's amazing that he can say, if you believe his promise, you're getting to the essence of who God is. You're embracing and partaking, participating in God himself as you believe his promise of himself to you. That's the covenant. Covenant is a little foreign word to us, but it's basically his bond by shedding his blood ultimately in Jesus Christ. Binding himself that I will do you good. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God are yes. In other words, the question is, what about those promises? Are they good? Can I count on them? He says they're yes, and he uses the word amen, which in the Hebrew is truly. You can count on it for sure. So all the promises are guaranteed, they're for sure, they're yours. Yours because of Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. In Him, you have all things. And how desperately, how desperately we need that. And how opposite of that life seems to be at times. When children go astray, when relationships are torn to pieces, when... Financially, things are turned upside down when there's a loss of a loved one, 
When we ourselves have such a terrible failure, we hardly can face life again. And we see the circumstances or we see the consequences of what we've done and we think, it's just going to cripple me. And in it, the question arises, is God faithful? Is he faithful? I can't see it. I can't taste it. I can't feel it. I can't believe it in his faithfulness. Well, that, that whole question of God's faithfulness is huge in Romans. And here at this juncture, which a lot of times chapter 3 verses 1 through 8 is kind of get through it so you can get on to verse 9 where we really start talking about people's sinfulness, right? Most of us know a lot about none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands. And 3, 1 through 8, though, is, is a very important passage. And uh, one commentator, Dunn, calls it a, a railroad junction of all the themes of Romans kind of coming together in one place right here. So we want to think about the faithfulness of God, particularly in the face of man's unfaithfulness, which you see again and again in this passage. So I first want to set the stage by reminding you of the Jews' view of themselves okay, and their place in history. The Jews' view of themselves and their place in history. And, and then what Paul said was wrong with it. And then how that would begin to raise the question then, well, what point is there even in being a Jew? Is there any advantage in being a Jew? And at this point, you might expect the answer, well, dude, there's none. You know, In the end, I guess there's no advantage in being a Jew. In fact, one commentator, Dodd, says he, he, the only reason Paul didn't say there is none is because he still had Jewish prejudice. Yeah. I think it's a little deeper than that, but uh, that was what one commentator said years ago. That's how much you kind of expect him not to say this, not to say much, much value in terms of being a Jew. But then the question arises, what if then the Jews are so unfaithful generally, doesn't that make God unfaithful? What about all of his promises to the Jews? And it seems like largely... They just haven't been fulfilled because the Jews, the very people of God, by and large, have not responded to their own Messiah. What does that say about God's faithfulness? That's really, however serious you may or may not think, that's a serious question to to Paul. Because he says, "If, if God's not faithful, there is no God. There is no faithfulness anywhere. We have nothing to depend on if if God isn't faithful. So it's a very serious issue uh, to Paul. So the Jewish idea of their position, they rightly saw their privilege before God. I mean, as Paul, even earlier in chapter 2, we talked about this some last week, verses 17 and following. I mean, they were, of all the peoples of the earth, they were the people of God. And they had a unique relationship to God that no other peoples had. Now, you could have that relationship to God, but you had to be a part of them to have that relationship with God, by and large. That was, that was generally what happened. And, and so, here you are, the people of God, and, and it's true, as many have pointed out, that if we had a map, I'd show you, but you had this huge uh, civilization in the northeast, Babylon, etc., okay? And then you had this huge civilization in Egypt, the two huge 
well-known civilization. Well, there was this little land bridge between them. And guess where God put Israel? Yeah, right there in the middle of it. So that they would shine to the nations. So that this crossroads of activity and commerce would be a place where the glory of God shone forth from the people of Israel. So they were the very people who were then to convey this God to others, to the world. They had the word of God as expressed in Romans 2 and some in Romans 9 we'll look at later, some months from now. But they had the word of God. They knew the will of God. Nobody else had that will. They had the laws of God. Nobody else had that law. They had the promises of God. No other people did. They had the signs of the Sabbath and circumcision. They had the rituals. They had the worship. They had the dietary laws and the other laws that separated them and made them unique. Well, all of these things were good, but what were they for? And so instead of humbling them and causing them by and large to be a people to then spin themselves out of gratitude and humility and brokenness for the sake of the world, having been entrusted with so much from God, they became dependent on these things, relying on these outward privileges. And the fact that they had these outward privileges causes them to kind of coast in their life. To depend on the outward and not be concerned about the inward. To think that they're safe and there's nothing that can happen to them. They can just uh, breeze on in because they're the circumcised. Because they go to synagogue every Sunday. Who else goes to synagogue? Nobody. Who else has the law? Nobody. And so the whole thing's turned on its head. So instead of humility and brokenness, it became pride. And so he he says there in chapter 2, you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. You see, you presume upon all this kindness that God has shown you and you don't see that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but you're hard-hearted against that repentance. This passage speaks about their unfaithfulness and probably the word at least includes their unbelief because that's said so often about the Jews in regard to God and then particularly in terms of Jesus Christ. It it manifested their lack of belief in God because they refused to believe in Christ, the very representative of God. So they relied on the outward privileges, but there was no faith and repentance. There was no heart response. They had the law in their hands, but they didn't have the law written in their heart. Unlike, as he says in chapter 2, many Gentiles now are having it written in their heart. Uh, You've got circumcision in your flesh, but you don't have circumcision of heart, as many Gentiles are now having circumcision of heart. Something's not right here. There are others experiencing the reality of this relationship with God. They're experiencing the promise of God. And and you are refusing that. And they had an expectation, you see, of the final manifestation of God's righteousness. They saw God's righteousness as showing itself in the fact that they had the Sabbath and they had all these outward signs. They had circumcision. And it would finally spill out in the final day when the Messiah comes and the Jews are set above all the earth and all the other nations are judged. So, if you want to view it visually, they viewed the world this way. Jews, Gentiles. More like this. Jews, Gentiles. Okay? 
salvation, judgment. If you're circumcised, you're probably going to be with Abraham. If you're not, you're not. That's the way it's going to be. But Paul comes along and he says, and it's not just that this is the first of it, but this is kind of the final uh, manifestation of it. The cut is not this way. The cut is this way. Okay? The cut is this way. Across Jewish lines and Gentile lines. And if you're a believer, then you are joined with Christ. If you're not a believer, Jew or Gentile, you're lost and you're shut out. So all believers in Christ form the new Israel. It's not circumcision. It's not the Sabbath. It's not those who simply do the outward things and don't have heart obedience and heart faith and the law written on their hearts. It is those who believe in Jesus Christ and have the renewal of the Spirit, Jew and Gentile. Now, that was just unthinkable to the Jew. This message in which the righteousness of God, his, his faithfulness to, to the Jews would finally show itself in the Jews getting to be the head honchos at the end. Because <laughs> he's their God. They're the descendants of Abraham. All of the promises point to this, that we will finally receive the kingdom in the end. And here's Paul coming in and saying, you're not going to receive the kingdom in the end unless you trust in Messiah, Jesus, uh, Jesus the Messiah. Christ meaning Messiah. And so what Paul is saying is that uh, there is a whole different way to look at this world through Jesus Christ. And that the Jews have got to see it from that perspective. And then the question, you see, would come up after that kind of condemnation in chapter 2. The question comes up in chapter 3, verse 1. Well, then what is the advantage of the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? If that's the case, if it's going to be cut this way, okay, then what does it matter if you're circumcised or not? What does it matter that you were a Jew or not? It seems to matter nothing. And so you'd think he'd say, nah, doesn't matter. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, much in every way. To begin with, he says, first, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And there's no second or third or fourth. So he interrupts the thought. And we get to this way over in chapter 9. And you can see he, he, in the first verses of chapter 9, he spills out all of the advantages that the Jews have. And he gets into that discussion. Right here, he just mentions one. He mentions the fact that they were entrusted with the Word of God, basically. And probably there's a little emphasis here on the promises of God. But most commentators would say, by and large, he means, uh, although he chooses a, a little bit unusual word, it's not uh, unused, um, and it means the Word of God. So they had the Word. Now, verse 3, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? So if he, and he, he's generous here. Everyone say he's, he's being kind in saying, what if some were unfaithful? Well, he could have said, what if most were unfaithful? Because most of the Jews had rejected Jesus Christ. But he uses a kind of gracious word. What if some were unfaithful? Does this nullify the faithfulness of God who says, I will be a God to my people. And yet now most of his people are outside the covenant. Most of his people are not saved. Does this nullify the faithfulness of God? 
And so God, and so Paul says, Meganoite, this is the, the emphatic word used by some Greek philosophers in their writings when they want to make a point. May it never be impossible. No, we might say. Okay, that don't think such a thing is kind of how we would put it. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. And here he's talking about God's faithfulness, though every single person. This is why verse some have taken verse four to mean uh, let God be true in his righteous judgment. But I think it means in many others that let God be true in his saving righteousness though everyone were a liar. Because if it was just that his judgment, of course, if everyone's a liar, he's going to be judged. He's going to judge them. But it's saying, let God be found true and faithful, though everybody is unfaithful. See? It doesn't depend upon human beings, ultimately, is what Paul's saying. And you can take everybody as being black-hearted. Everybody's a liar. Everybody's faithless. And God in His sovereign power and His saving purpose will accomplish His purpose and save His people. And He will save every single one that He planned to save, no matter how much they are by nature lost and lying faithless. He will prove true. And it appears that Paul is giving a a new kind of enlargement of this phrase in Psalm 51.6, that you may be justified in your words. He quotes the Greek version of this, and prevail when you are judged. We're familiar with this uh, passage of, of David's confession. But it appears that he's giving it this uh, bit of expanded meaning because Psalm 51, though, though David is confessing his sin, it's in the context of salvation that God is saving David from his sin and forgiving David for, for, for his sin. And so many have taken this, that you may be justified in your words where you said to me that I would be uh, the king, that, that you would be faithful to me, that you would put me on the throne, that you would continue your faithfulness to me. And it seems to be this is how Paul is using this. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, that you may be justified that your promises are true and prevail when you are judged as to whether you're faithful or not. You are faithful. You are true, though everybody is a liar. Then verses 5 through 8 are dealing with kind of a different aspect of this. Well then, if when we're unrighteous... God is shown to be more and more righteous. Or when we're unfaithful, He's shown to be faithful. If my sin becomes ultimately a reason for more glory to God, what does it matter if you sin or not? See? And even to the point that He says in verse 8, some people even say of our gospel, of our message, because of the how much grace is involved in my message, well, if there's that much grace... For just total sinners, no matter what, and God is gracious to do them good and to transform them, even before they've done anything for themselves, then let's just do evil that good may come. And Paul dismisses it and says, their condemnation is judged. May they be cursed. I'm just dismissing that. That's so ridiculous. It's not even to be considered that that's something that I would teach. That it doesn't matter how you live. And later in chapter 6, he deals with this particularly by that, that question 
may, may we sh- maybe we should just sin so that grace can abound. We see in these ways, uh, he is saying that uh, God is never unrighteousness, uh, unrighteous. As he says in verse 6, just ending this, the debate this way to say, how can we say God is unrighteous? Then how is he going to judge the Gentiles? You think he's unrighteous, Mr. Jube, in doing this? Well, how can he even judge the Gentiles then? Um, So I want to look then briefly at how. How is God faithful in this? How is God faithful? How does Paul, what's Paul's, how does he get at this faithfulness of God when so many of the Jews have turned away? And I'm borrowing some from what he says later in chapters 9 through 11 because this seems to be an early statement where Paul feels like he has to at least say some of these things, but he can't really totally get into it because he's going to deal with justification by faith and other things. But later in chapter 9, he gets to these matters of the faithfulness of God. And he spends what we see as three chapters on it about the Jew and the Gentile and that relationship, why the Jews turned away. This is huge to Paul because it deals with the faithfulness of God. Well, one thing he says in those chapters is that that there's a remnant that is saved. He even goes back to Baal and says, remember uh, back then when uh, the prophet Elijah says, hey, I'm the only one left, and God comes to him and says, no, no, there's 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to Baal. Paul brings that up. He says, no, God is faithful because His promise is to bless His people and there's always a remnant that believe and are the fulfillment of that promise. Even the remnant is a fulfillment of that promise. And that remnant is here. Paul even says, hey, I'm a Jew. You know, (laughs) I've told you before how foolish it is for as I heard this guy in Dallas say one time, a, a Jewish uh, fella say, when he heard about the Jews for Jesus organization, he says, well, there's no such thing as a Jew for Jesus. You know, <laughs> you say it's such a com- you know, comical thing like Jesus himself or Paul and Peter and you know, a whole realm. The unusual thing at the time was to have a Gentile for Jesus. You know, <laughs> there were only Jews for Jesus to start with. And it was Jews for Jesus that brought Gentiles to Jesus. So Paul says there is a remnant of Jewish Christians, Jews who believe in Messiah. This is a fulfillment of God's promise. And in chapter 9, he talks about how he chose Jacob but didn't choose Esau and how God's election cuts across Israel. Some are chosen among Israel, some are not. We'll get to that later. But the remnant that does believe. Secondly, how is the fulfillment? How, does he, how is he faithful? It's that the remnant is being used to bring the Gentiles to faith in Christ. Now, when you go back to Genesis chapter 12, when he promises Abraham that I will be your God and you will have a land and there will have a seed that will come after you. And he says, through you, I will bless the whole earth through your seed. Now, you and I have to hear this in this way. He promised the world that he would bless the world at that point. Not directly, because he's speaking to Abraham. It wasn't a big announcement, you know, megaphone over the whole world. I'm going to bless you. But the world was the object of his promise. Through you, through your seed, the whole earth will be blessed. 
So you see, you can't separate God's faithfulness to the Jews from his faithfulness to bring the gospel to the world. It is the fulfillment of his covenant. Hundreds of millions of people have believed in Jesus Christ in fulfillment of the covenant that God made. He's been good to his promise and he's going to continue to be good to his promise. And that's why many of us think that hundreds of millions of Hindus and Muslim, uh, Muslims will still come to Christ. Because he said the whole earth will be blessed. God is faithful to his promises. He is faithful in his covenant. But his covenant didn't have to do just with the Jews. It had to do from the beginning with the whole earth. And then, um, well, let me just say one more thing about that. That's why in Romans 5, the issue is not Moses versus Jesus. It's Adam Versus Jesus. All of the world, Jew or Gentile, is either in Adam or it's in Christ. The whole world is divided that way. You're in Christ or you're in Adam. And it's like a whole new creation. It's, in a way, it's kind of like Noah, where the world was started all over again and only those were saved in the ark and the world had a restart. Well, it's like that with Christ because now we're in the new creation, he calls it. And it's as though everything up to now was old creation. Now the new creation has begun. And all those who are in Christ are the ones who are saved from the coming pressing judgment that's, co- that's coming to this earth. We're part of the new creation. And if you're not part of that new creation in Christ, you are destined for judgment. So, he's faithful to the remnant. He's faithful to the Gentiles. Wonderfully, gloriously. We're all here because of his faithfulness. Because of his covenant faithfulness. But then in a cool reversal that Paul talks about in Romans 11, he says, God has shown mercy to the Gentiles so that by by their receiving mercy, the Jews in turn will be jealous. And he said, if in their disobedience... Mercy was shown to the Gentiles. In the midst of Israel's disobedience, mercy was shown to the Gentiles. What if now God, through our mercy that we've received in our ministry and proclaiming the word back to the Jews, what can happen to them? And he even talks about this saying, there's a partial hardening of the Jews until the final fulfillment of the Gentiles. And then he says, all Israel will be saved, Romans 11. Now, it it may mean that through that partial hardening, hardening, until all the Gentiles are gathered in, it's only a partial hardening. And all along, Jews are being one to Christ, always being one to Christ, one to Christ. And finally, in the fulfillment of the Gentiles, all the Jews that God intended are going to be saved as well. It could even mean... And I kind of lean this way. We'll see by the time I get there what I think. Um, But it could mean that all Israel in a huge way will be brought to Christ. Because he says, if in their disobedience and their rejection of Messiah, life went to the world, to the Gentiles, what's going to happen if they are converted in mass? He said, it's going to be like resurrection from the dead, Paul said. 
And that's why the Puritans and Charles Spurgeon and so many, John Calvin, had this hope of the conversion of the Jews because they all thought if that happens, Katie barred the door of what's going to happen in this world if the Jews are saved in mass. So you see, God is faithful to the remnant. He's faithful to the Gentiles. He's faithful in His continuing purpose to the Jews. And we don't even know what that may mean. We don't even know. And so He is faithful. And I want to urge you uh, to believe in His faithfulness. No matter how faithless you have been, no matter what kind of a fake and liar you have been, no matter what kind of hypocrite you have been. It says here, does their faithfulness nullify the, the faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? No. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. All that is it, all that excludes you is faith. If you refuse to trust in this gracious God who's given His Son for your salvation, who's given this Son that you might not have to suffer for your sin, that you might be transformed by His grace, that's the only thing that'll shut you out, is unbelief. And He even gives you this, as Jesus says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. That indicates that He will bring you. He will give you faith. You cry out to Him. You you cry out to Him in your helplessness and say, Lord, I don't know if I can believe. I don't know if I can repent. I don't feel like there's any way I can turn my life around. Good. Good. That's a start, right? Of helplessness. I'm I'm ridden by guilt. The consequences of my life are so many places I can't even name it. And, oh, Lord, I can't change the way I think and the way I feel and the things I desire. Oh, Lord, save me. Rescue me. He is faithful. He is faithful. And beware of the one thing, Hebrews 13, 12, an evil, unbelieving heart. Believe Him for the guilt of sin and the power of sin and your past and the consequences. Just bring it all to Him like the lame man, like the leper, like the blind man. Just bring Him all of your disease and say, heal me and save me. And the continuing questions that we begin with in terms of God's faithfulness, the tragedies that that I know about in this congregation... It's just, it's just horrible, really. What I know has happened to people in this congregation. The way that many of you have been mistreated and abused, betrayed, abandoned. And of course, we've all done our share of those things as well. In the way we've hurt other people. But this does not define God. What's, I love this slant about this. Does their faithlessness, their lying, their mistreatment nullify the faithfulness of God? No. Does it mean anything about whether God is faithful or not? No. He is the faithful God to do you good. It does not define God. And we cannot allow any circumstance or surely no evil human being to define God for us. 
to set our course and say, okay, this is what God's like. This is what life's all about. Because God is faithful, though the whole world be a liar. I like to think of uh, <clears throat> suffering as kind of like a train coming into your, your, let's say your life is the city or the town and the train of suffering comes into the town. And let's just say that the engineer to heighten the tragedy of it is some human agent that's hurt you or is hurting you. Okay, so they come into town and they're all about blowing things up and tearing your life to pieces. But they don't even know that there's this huge line of boxcars. Huge line of boxcars. And every one of them contains blessings for your life that God intends. Through this person's mistreatment or abuse or hurt. And, and whatever he does, he cannot stop. He cannot unhook the train cars. He just can't. Okay? They're there. And they're there for anyone who will believe. And when you believe, these things start opening up and pouring into your lives. Character changes and growth in faith and growth in joy and love. Things that you couldn't imagine that occur only through suffering. Like the psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Your word is your, your suffering and your grace has changed me. But I also want to say that every time that train comes in with all those blessings, there's a stowaway, the enemy, Satan, the Lord of despair, the prince of desperation and desolation. And he wants to say to you the same thing he said to uh, Eve, basically. Eve, this God who put this tree in front of you, he is not faithful. You cannot trust him. Do not trust him that he's telling you the truth. He is not true. He's not faithful. She believed him. She jettisoned God and everything that she had with him in hope of finding truth, something out there. And he comes in, he's kind of like these people that come in after a, a flood and they're charging, you know, ten times as much for necessary items, you think. You evil, crummy people. And so he's abusing and misusing the opportunity. But especially I think of him as, as uh, a looter, wanting to loot your life or your faith, wanting to spread the disease and the destruction of unbelief in your heart because of this tragedy. When, when God has the boxcars of blessing for you to be used in your life because he is faithful. But if you will continue in unbelief, if you'll continue to say, I'm not going to entrust my life to this God and I don't believe He's faithful, then He does speak of wrath. God is not unrighteous to inflict wrath. He's not unrighteous. He will pour out His wrath on those who would refuse, especially because he has shown his faithfulness in the person of Jesus Christ. You have to look at Jesus Christ, God's sacrifice of his own son for your sin and my sin, and, and then look at God and say, yeah, even then I say you're not faithful and I will not give my life into your hands. What the writer of Hebrews says, trampling underfoot the blood of the Son of God. 
Oh, dear friend, dear friend, entrust yourself to this God who is faithful. There's no other shelter. There's no other refuge. There's no other hope. It is this faithful God alone. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we praise you. We honor you that our foundation is secure in Christ Jesus. We honor you, Lord, that though all of life is unsure, we don't know if we'll live through the day. We are, as Psalm 90 and 91 speak of, we're just a breath. Our days are so few and then we're gone, we're swept away. But you are our dwelling place forever. You and your faithful Steadfast love is our security and our hope. And nothing, nothing can change that. Nothing can take that away. We're yours and we're in your hands and you're devoted to our good. And every circumstance becomes your servant. Every circumstance, every even evil done against us becomes in your amazing, sovereign, loving hands, your servant to do us good in ways that we, at the time, we just cannot fathom. But you are the faithful God who gave his own son. May we trust you and rejoice in you and give our lives up to you, almighty, faithful God, in Jesus' name. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?